Welcome to Twill, the Week in Health Law, the podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. This episode was recorded on March 14th, 2019. I'm Nicholas Terry, a professor of law at Indiana University in Indianapolis. Two excellent guests this week. Uh, Dr. Aaron Kesselheim is an associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and a faculty member in the Division of Pharmacoepidemiology and Pharmacoeconomics in the Department of Medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Aaron directs the program on regulation, therapeutics and law, also known as PORTAL, which is an interdisciplinary research core focusing on intersections among prescription drugs and medical devices, patient health outcomes and regulatory practices and the law. Jonathan Darrow is also a faculty member at Harvard Medical School and is a member of the Portal Group. Great welcome back, Aaron. And finally, Jonathan, a fine welcome to you, sir. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks very much for hosting. All right. So uh, we need to tread on the third rail, don't we? Where are we on drug prices? The narrative has been sort of persistently negative, both in terms of drug prices continuing to increase and relatively little being done about it at the federal level, despite a lot of sort of exercise speeches and the sense of some movement under the Trump administration. Is it even accurate to continue with the drug price increasing narrative? I saw a report this week in Market Watch suggesting the cost of prescription drugs over the past year have dropped by 1.2%, biggest 12-month decline in, since 1972. Over on Health Affairs this week, I noticed something of a kerfuffle over uh, uh, whether you should use list rather than net prices when you're doing drug price research and so on. So I think there's a, there's an awful lot of noise, uh, and hopefully with your help we can we can come up with uh, some of the signal. I guess first a, a general question, a sort of a high level policy or maybe policy politics question. How do you break the linkage between controlling drug prices and the importance of drug profits to the U.S. economy and drug innovation. Uh, is, is that a an inflated premise that those two things are sort of uh, naturally in opposition? Or is that a sense that it's only really true in Trumplandia and primarily sort of linked to an idea of European free riding? I mean, I think that, that certainly what you hear about innovation and the link between drug prices and innovation, I mean, that's classically the, um, you know, the main, uh, one of the main pushbacks that you hear when you when you think about uh, trying to reform uh, pharmaceutical prices in the U.S. is that uh, oh if you if you do anything to touch uh, drug prices then then all innovation is going to screech to a halt and and I you know I think that that is um, overblown for um, a couple reasons and and I just I just want to point out um, two that I think are particularly relevant um, the first being that research from our group and others uh, has shown that that some of the really most important innovation the the innovation that leads to the most transformative and, and most uh, useful drugs originates with publicly funded science that's conducted in academic research settings and government laboratories. And, you know, I think as long as we keep that um, investment up, then we will continue to have a whole range of, you know, very exciting new enzyme pathways and targets and innovative uh, approaches to to treating uh, diseases that will be available for, for investment. And actually, a lot of that work isn't just like the earliest basic science, but it's translational science and in some cases, you know, proof of concept and, uh, you know, all the way through to some of the, you know, to some of the later stages. So that would be the first point I would make. The 
say, and, but, but I do recognize that the pharmaceutical industry invests a lot of money in research and development and in taking the baton in, the, in some of those cases from, from the academic setting and turning it into a, an approved product. And so the second point I would make is that when people are talking about reforming drug prices, we're not just talking about taking 50% off the top of drug prices. And, and what we're actually doing is talking about trying to make it such that drug prices reflect the value that the drugs provide in the United States. And, and I think that right now we have a system where, where there is not a connection between you know, the drug, a drug's value and its price. And as a result of that, there are a lot of drugs out there that are not very effective or useful um, that we still pay a lot for and, 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 and waste a lot of money on. Whereas if we had a system where we were able to uh, better link uh, drug value with the uh, drug price, then we might actually end up paying a lot of money still for really important, really valuable new products. And that would be totally fine. Uh, but what we wouldn't do is we wouldn't pay for the drugs that only add incremental value or, or you know, wouldn't pay as much, at least for those drugs. And we wouldn't pay at all for drugs that don't add any value at all. So the system right now actually provides perverse incentives to give us not very useful innovation in a lot of circumstances. And it, when you think about it from that frame, then it's not really about, you know, just kind of taking a big haircut off the top, but really trying to, trying to bring some rationality and logic to a system that I think could actually be helpful for necessary innovation going forward. I agree with that. And I'm glad, Nick, that you started off the podcast with the word narrative, because the narrative and the conversation in the recent uh, hearings in the Senate and House have been that we have a huge drug price problem. Uh, my view is that, by and large, we don't have a drug price problem. We have a drug selection problem. And that's related to some of the things that Aaron was just talking about. The market is not functioning efficiently. We're selecting drugs that cost uh, very high amounts, uh, but that provide small benefits, or in some cases, uh, we, we have a paper out showing that about a, a third of new drugs actually provide no benefit or negative benefit as compared to existing options. So I, I think the narrative has to shift from one that's focused on what the industry is doing incorrectly with respect to pricing to what the market is failing to do in terms of channeling uh, decision makers toward the products that make the most sense. So we need to help the market work better. We need better disclosure of efficacy information and price information so that physicians and patients can comparison shop. We need pricing that's rationally related to the benefit that drugs offer. Uh, and to achieve those things, we need greater uh, formal reliance on organizations like ICER, the uh, Nonprofit Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, uh, which provides excellent calculations of cost-benefit ratios using the best available methodology. Uh, there's um, a group called Prescreer, which is a nonprofit French organization that puts out unbiased reviews uh, of new drugs using simple language. Uh, they have a simple six-point thumbs-up or thumbs-down rating scale. Uh, it even has pictures to help. Uh, we need greater transparency of price information. Patients need to be able to know the price of a drug long before they reach the pharmacy counter. Uh, physicians need to know the price of a drug at the time of prescribing. So th these pressure points are where better technology could come in handy. Um, and because different parties are involved, it's a complex picture, it may require legislation to help coordinate and make this happen. Uh, how many other products can you think of where you don't know the price at the point of sale and you only find out the price 30 minutes or three days or three months later? This is an, uh, an anomalous system. It's an unusual system, uh, but it's one that we've grown accustomed to and that we 
we accept in the healthcare sector. Uh, we need fewer secret rebates, uh, fewer uh, discount programs, but mostly we need better disclosure of efficacy information so that the market can, can function properly. Uh, right now, the market is absolutely irrational with some products costing tens or hundreds of times more than therapeutically equivalent products. I want to keep going in the direction that you started us on, Jonathan. I don't think it would be a surprise to anyone on the pod to hear me talk about new technology assessment models that are used in most other developed countries um, that examine cost effectiveness or comparative assessment, either as part of the drug approval process or as part of some kind of formulary approval process. Are we in harmony that the chances of such an agency ever arising in this country are pretty slim? Or are those sort of non-profit examples you gave earlier, Jonathan, uh, maybe the uh, the light at the end of the tunnel? Uh, sometimes I feel like we are on a collision course with disaster, and it's hard to know wh where this will end other than system collapse. The uh, I, I I mean, ICER and Prescreer are doing a fantastic job at getting information out there, but there is not currently the obligation for any party to rely on that information. Uh, and until there is, it's not clear that those organizations will be able to have as big an impact uh, as they sh as I think they should have. I guess I would I would sh uh, maybe direct the discussion toward the payment system that we have here, which is has shifted dramatically over the past 50 years. In, in 1960, approximately 95% of uh, prescription drug costs were paid for out of pocket. Uh, today, that fraction has reversed so that it's only around 10%. Uh, and so we have a, a very fractionated market of different payors, uh, but altogether those payors are uh, covering the large majority of drug costs. And we combine that system of guaranteed payment uh, with a system that believes, I think often rightly, that patients should have access to needed medicines. So th there's there's no there's no restriction on what companies can charge, and there's a guarantee that we will pay whatever they charge. So we're mixing a, uh, a social guarantee of payment with a free market economy of pricing. And those two different philosophies of how to regulate the market may be fundamentally incompatible. So I, I think where all of this is headed is that one of those two things has to change. Either there's somehow we have to regulate prices in a way that, that we have not in the past, or the market has to go back to a system where not all prices are uh, will be paid no matter how high they are. And, and I don't think that most people are willing to, to roll back uh, what insurance covers. So I think that may be the more unlikely of the two options. I also you know, think that what ICER is doing is, is interesting. And I think that they are trying to take a transparent and open approach to making those kinds of assessments. But you know, ICER is a very small nonprofit organization and there's just no way that they can provide the same kind of support and and make and you know cover the same kind of ground that you know occurs in in uh, in other countries where you know they have government level organizations that are uh, that are playing this role and you know throughout US history there have been efforts to try to create such an organization and there was the Office of Technology Assessment in the 1970s and then AHRQ was supposed to take on the role and and then uh, and then there was the patient centered outcome 
Outcomes Research Institute, when it was created about 10 years ago, was supposed to do this until, and in each of those cases, political forces, you know, driven by the pharmaceutical industry and its lobbying power, moved those organizations away from doing the actual useful comparative and cost-effectiveness research that um, is so sorely needed. And so, you know, are we at an inflection point again where, we're, where you know, our, our legislators are going to try to come back to the table and uh, and try to, to create a, another system? I mean, you know, uh, we'll see. It does seem like it happens every every 10 to 15 years or so, and it's been about 10 to 15 years since since the discussions were around PCORI. So maybe we're, we're ripe for having those discussions again, but it is a, a, a relatively sorry history in, in that um, on that front. I remember the day I, I, I first read the ACA text around PCORI and saw the uh, prohibition on using qualies, and I just knew, okay, dead from dead before it gets going. So let's go back to sort of Jonathan's sort of Hobson's choice. You know, we we regulate prices or we go back to some sort of um, out-of-pocket increase. I tend to dismiss the second of those choices, Jonathan, because I think the out-of-pocket situation with regard to health insurance generally is getting close to a crisis point. I don't think folks can handle any more out-of-pocket at the moment. I think that if anything is going to ever lead us to Medicare for all, I think it's going to be employer-provided under-insurance that will move that debate. But that's another debate. So assume for the sake of argument that we're going to need some kind of price regulation. I saw a piece on Vox a little while ago, and I think they had like eight ideas to reduce drug prices. And I picked the first five. And let me get your reaction to them as being good policy, bad policy, really stupid, which I'm already going to say is number two, which is Canadian drugs, um, or any other reaction you have to the list. Uh, Number one, help generic competitors get on the market as quickly as possible. Two, here we go, let Americans import cheaper drugs from Canada. Three, cap patients' out-of-pocket costs for drugs. So to an extent, the opposite maybe of what you were talking about, Jonathan. Uh, Four, let Medicare collectively negotiate drug prices. Or five, tax drug companies for price hikes. Does anything touch you there negatively or positively? Offhand, I think these are all ideas that have major problems. Getting generic drugs to market more quickly is a sensible proposition. There's certainly nothing wrong with that to have the FDA, to have the FDA generic drug approval process be efficient. Once generic drugs are on the market, uh, they do seem to exert downward price pressure. Uh, those Those are all good things, but getting generics on the market quickly will do nothing to lower prices during the pre-generic period. So unless we're willing to discuss getting rid of exclusivities and getting rid of patents entirely, there will still be a period of perhaps 10 or right now the average period is about 13 and a half years during which uh, faster generic competition just isn't going to happen because there's there's exclusivity that still applies. Uh, so that won't be a, 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 a an entire fix. W- with regard to importing drugs from other countries, whether it's you know Canada or elsewhere, the major limitation with that is that it exports U.S. intellectual property policy. Uh, And it's not clear that we want to, for the broad market of drugs, say we as a country are unable to formulate an appropriate intellectual property policy. So we're just going to go with whatever, uh, you know, Canada or any other country happens to have for its policy. And, you know, depending on how broad your importation policy is, you would end up with a lowest common denominator uh, issue there. Importation may be appropriate in certain limited circumstances, for example, 
example, if there are drug shortages in the United States, or if there are uh, maneuvering by companies, uh, as we saw with some single source drugs where the price was dramatically increased in a short period of time where the US generic drug market can't respond quickly enough simply because of the time that it takes to get a new drug approved, right? Importation might make sense in those cases. Uh, for, for capping out of pocket spending, uh, certainly as a consumer, I that sounds like a great idea to me. Uh, and I think one thing that has happened, um, uh, you, you, earlier you had said that it's unlikely that, uh, or that it's not desirable to place a greater burden on the patient because we're already sort of at our limits in terms of what we can pay. Uh, part of that is th- that we started out paying everything out of pocket with no component coming from insurance. Now we pay insurance premiums, but because of the prices are getting so high, the co-payments and co-insurance is being shifted back to the patient. And so we're now in the situation where we're we're not only paying out of pocket, but we're also paying insurance. So it, it's not clear that that's a better system than having patients just pay out of pocket because the, 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 uh, the dual source, it's almost like an additional tax that creates a bigger pool of funds that allows drug companies to raise prices higher than they could have in the absence of, of that insurance pool. Uh, with respect to Medicare negotiation, there's there's some challenges there with respect to um, you have to have a next best option. You have to have something against which to negotiate. So if you're if you're holding out for a lower price and the, the company refuses to honor that price, you have to be willing to exclude the drug from the formulary, which I, I think um, we may not be willing to do. So, so certainly negotiation makes sense, but I think there are limits to how much it can accomplish. There have been a number of proposals about limiting the ability of drug companies to increase prices, uh, whether that's a tax or whether it's a provision that just sets a, a, you know, a percentage limit on how much you can uh, increase the prices per year. T- to me, that will just shift the problem uh, to the initial price. Uh, companies will say, uh, if we can only increase our price by 2% a year, well, that's why we need to start out with a much higher price. You know, and that's our justification for why this price is so high. And I think many of the reforms that, that uh, have been voiced during the legislative uh, hearings over the last two months have been in that vein, in that they will help to solve a problem so long as nothing else changes. But it's extremely unlikely that nothing else will change because businesses will respond the best way that they can. And in some cases, the best way that they can will have adverse effects, such as starting with higher prices initially. In general, I, I agree with a lot of stuff that Jonathan said. I, I have some, you know, may have some quibbles with particular things, but I, I think that, yeah, in general, um, just to go through quickly, you know, generic in, in generic competition makes sense. Importing drugs from Canada does not. Capping out-of-pocket costs may be useful, but will overall increase drug prices and so actually would work against us, you know, unless it's combined with other changes. But Medicare negotiation, I'll get back to in a second. I think that could be a, an effective uh, way forward. And taxing price hikes, again, you know, is I think that a better thing to do would be to just not allow the, the price hikes to happen in the first place because, you know, the government is helping negotiate prices. So, but taxing price hikes might might be a, a you know, a, an effective way of doing that too. My, my, uh, my three-point plan for uh, addressing uh, drug prices would be, first of all, to have the, the U.S. government help you know, negotiate the price of products on behalf of all the, the different uh, people that it, uh, it provides prescription drug insurance for. And, and at this point, you know, there are 100, 100 million people plus who are getting prescription drug insurance through the, through the U.S. government, through Medicare, Medicaid, one way or other. But I think that you know, allowing the government to, to negotiate 
negotiate a price for prescription drugs based on the value that they provide is the, the way forward to try to make sure that drug prices are rational. And it's a little bit strange that the government negotiates or sets prices for every single medical service it pays for, but it just, except for prescription drugs. So allowing the government to do that is the first point of my three-point plan. The second point of my three-point plan would be to not allow pharmaceutical manufacturers to raise prices year after year unless they bring new information to the table. Um, but you know, if, if the drug continues to have the same, you continue to know the same thing about the, the, how, how the drug works, then not allowing price hikes year after year you know, above, the, above the rise in inflation, I think would help constrain drugs from, from having these substantial increases in prices over time based on nothing other than manufacturers trying to extract the maximum amount they can from the market. And then the third point would be to try to figure out a way of working into that negotiated price to the extent that the public has invested in the development of that drug and has taken on a lot of the initial cost or risk in bringing that drug to market to the extent that the public has done that and the public uh, does do that in a, uh, in a substantial number of cases, particularly for the most transformative drugs, being able to work that into what the uh, what the negotiated price is, uh, you know, figuring out how to fairly do that, you know, in a way that provides appropriate recognition of the, of the public's investment while still recognizing manufacturers need to, to sustain a reasonable profit. I, so I think that those three things to me make up the, you know, and then we can do a bunch of other things, including, you know, trying to make sure that generic drugs get on the market in a timely fashion so that market exclusivity periods end in a reasonable period of time. Those kinds of things are, are those, the other things that you surround that with. But I think that those are three, three important ideas, at least in my mind. Yeah, nicely said. Before we sort of move away f directly from pricing, one thing I think is is always very hard to understand is where the pharmacy benefit managers fit into this puzzle. You increasingly see them being hauled in front of congressional uh, subcommittees with the argument what that they negotiate rebates from the pharmaceutical companies, but then they don't pass them on. Pharmaceutical benefit managers, you know, I, I mean, I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's been a lot of attention paid towards pharmaceutical benefit managers. And I think that some of that is strategic because, you know, the pharmaceutical industry would like nothing more than to be able to distract from concerns about how it sets prices to other parties in the in the, the system. And pharmaceutical benefit managers are a convenient uh, party because a lot of what they do happens, you know, in the shadows and, and behind closed doors. So it's hard for policymakers and members of the public to, to evaluate whether they are providing an important service or whether or not they are... Um, you know, doing things that lead towards inefficiencies and promote and, and exacerbate the inefficiencies in the system. So, I mean, I think that pharmaceutical benefit managers do a lot of good. I mean, I think that they, you know, help encourage patient adherence and they promote use of low-cost generic drugs when they're available. You know, we did a study where we looked at uh, one proposal by the Trump administration, which was to move drugs from Medicare Part B, where price is set based on the average sales price in the market plus a small percent, over to Medicare Part D, where the plans uh, and particularly and pharmaceutical benefit managers negotiate price of, of the drugs that are covered by the plans. And what we found was that there was substantial savings that the government could have by moving these high cost drugs from in, into a system where the prices are negotiated by, by PBMs. And so it's clear that at some level, the PBMs are doing good work in, in negotiating prices. Now, are there parts of the market and, and the system where the PBMs do things that are, uh, you know, work in the opposite? direction and are there ways that they are not optimally incentivized to try to get the lowest price that society could get uh, for a particular product? Sure. And 
and for those reasons, we should you know scrutinize their business practices as well. But uh, you know, I, I think that at the end of the day, you know, if we take PBMs out of the system, then we still have the monopolist pharmaceutical manufacturers, uh, you know, setting the price of products, and and we're going to have to replace the negotiating uh, work that PBMs do with something else. Yes, I think that's right. So let's let's move from sideways a little bit from cost prices related to traditional drugs to gene therapies. Uh, Jonathan has a, a a nice new piece on the drug Luxturna. And uh, I noticed you, you a really interesting point you made in that piece, Jonathan, um, in that you you noted how it was a unlike most RX drugs, it actually requires a surgical procedure. Sort of, it, it almost to an extent, it, it seems more akin to a device than than a traditional uh, prescription drug. Can you tell us a little bit more about this drug and why its pricing and other issues caught your attention? Luxturna, uh, which is has a an almost unpronounceable uh, generic name, Veredigine Naparvovec RZYL, uh, is a gene therapy that was approved by the FDA in late 2017 for the treatment of a, a rare form of inherited blindness. Uh, it was a drug that was designated by the FDA as a breakthrough, uh, and it was absolutely extolled in the press. Uh, Fortune ran a story titled, The First FDA-Approved Gene Therapy Can Cure a Type of Blindness. Uh, new Newsweek had an article, How a New Cure for Blindness Reverses Retinal Dystrophy. Uh, CNBC, uh, CNBC's headline was, A Drug Maker Offers to Cure a Rare Blindness, and, and there were many, many others. Uh, the only problem was that the evidence didn't actually show that the drug was a cure. If you look at the FDA review documents, which is uh, what I did in preparation for the article, uh, Luxterna is, uh, and forgive me for using the brand name, but it's just so much easier, uh, it's probably one of the few drugs approved by the FDA that actually deserves the term breakthrough. Uh, technically, it was the first directly administered gene therapy approved by the FDA, so it was a scientific milestone. Uh, and clinically, it does improve to a meaningful extent patient vision, uh, at least for about half of the patients, uh, 55% according to the FDA's criteria. But it, it's not a cure, uh, or at least the evidence doesn't establish it to be a cure for most patients. Um, stated just a bit differently, only about half of tre treated patients met the FDA's criteria for minimally meaningful improvement. Uh, another problem is that there is some evidence, uh, although we don't have long-term data, so it's inconclusive, uh, but that the improvements that did occur might not persist for more than five or ten years. Um, so because some of the patients were as young as four at the time of randomization, this means that by the time they're ten, right, still in elementary school, any benefit that they did experience might already have begun to decline. So, um, so when the maker says the drug is a one-time treatment, which is something that they have said. It may be true in the literal sense that you don't administer it more than once, uh, but it's not true in the sense that the patient is expected to be cured for that patient's life. Um, so, and as I said, the drug was not shown to restore normal vision. Uh, there were some quotes from the uh, subjects during the advisory committee hearing, uh, which made that clear. One, one patient, uh, uh, for example, reported being able to, uh, after the treatment, uh, to be able to use iPhone accessibility apps. Well, that may be a meaningful improvement, but accessibility apps, according to the to Apple's website, have features like allowing people to, and, and I'm quoting here, enjoy using the iPhone even if you don't see the screen. In other words, the accessibility apps are for those who are visually impaired, meaning that the patient's vision after the treatment was still impaired. Uh, and, and the patient even says that later in the transcript. So another subject said she could see some letters on the eye chart. Well, if you can see the E at 
the top of the eye chart, that's better than not being able to see the E, but it's not normal vision. So when the news reports stated that Luxturna restores vision, that's technically true. But what they mean is that it restores some vision. It doesn't restore normal vision, which is, I think, how some readers might have misinterpreted that statement. So bringing this back to price, which I think is where, where we started, that, that's the other major issue with Luxterna. Um, I, got, I got interested in it because the claimed benefits seem to be uh, too good to be true. And it, it turned out that that, in fact, seems to be the case. But so for a product whose benefit is as large as Luxterna is, and again, compared to most other drugs, the benefit here is very large, the price can be expected to be high and probably needs to be high in order to incentivize more products uh, like it that actually help patients uh, by a meaningful amount. Uh, but the price was still shocking. Uh, it was listed at $425,000 per eye. So for most patients, $850,000. Uh, uh, $850, uh, and that's not including hospital costs. Uh, but it's also important to note that, that those prices, as high as they are, don't actually capture the full cost that society pays uh, for the treatment. And, and this is true not just of Luxterna, but probably with most or maybe all other drugs. And that's because we heavily subsidize drug development in many ways. Uh, in the case of Luxterna, for example, the drug received an orphan designation, uh, meaning that it was for a rare disease affecting fewer than 200,000 people in the U.S. Uh, and the orphan designation means that the company was potentially eligible for a tax credit worth 50% of its clinical trial costs, which can be millions or tens of millions of dollars or more. We don't know in, in this particular case how much they were, but they could have been large. Uh, orphan status also entitles a company to a waiver of the $2.4 million uh, new drug application fee. And the maker of Luxterna was also awarded a rare pediatric disease priority review voucher, uh, which is uh, an incentive program that entitles the holder of the voucher to accelerate uh, the FDA review of a different drug, not Luxterna, but a different drug, or it can transfer that voucher to a different company. In this case, that's what happened. The maker of Luxterna sold the voucher to another company for $110 million. Uh, and these are just some of the most tangible subsidies that the government provides. There are also harder to quantify public funds that are relevant, like NIH funding or a nonprofit foundation funding, or the tax deductibility of donations that a company might make to patient advocacy groups, uh, or direct funding uh, through things like the FDA's orphan grants programs or more general uh, funding through state and local incentives uh, used to attract businesses like, like abatements. So on the one hand, Luxterna is an unusual drug in that its clinical benefit, uh, although not curative, is much greater than the average new drug approved. Uh, but on the other hand, Luxterna is typical of new drugs in that the benefit is much smaller than the headlines suggest. Uh, price is extremely high and the total societal costs are even higher than that. Uh, and this matters for policy because if if we're paying for treatments that we think are cures, but that aren't, uh, then we're probably paying too high a price. It's like paying $300,000 for what you think is a Lamborghini, uh, but what you actually end up with is a bicycle. I mean, that might help you get around a little, but it's not the same thing, and it's not what you expected uh, or what you paid for. So I think there are a couple of other interesting sort of cost pricing issues with regard to gene therapies. One of them, I think, is that if, let's, let's assume that this is medically necessary, you have an insurer and the insurer pays for this, I'm going to say one-time treatment, Jonathan, but I, I take your edit that in fact, it, it may not be for life, um, but let's, let's assume a one-time treatment. And the insurer pays for that one-time treatment of, you know, a zillion dollars. And then the, the patient changes insurers and goes off to somewhere else. 
Um, the, the same could be moving from different public insurance models, one of which has paid for this drug and the other uh, now sort of gets the benefit of it. So I think there's some sort of new sort of maybe distortion to, to prices and costs in drugs when you start bringing in these gene therapies. The other point I think fits in here to an extent is I I, I found a link uh, a, a few weeks ago to a, an April 2018 Goldman Sachs biotech research report on gene therapies, which had the um, the tantalizing clickbait title, Is Curing Patients a Sustainable Business Model? And the idea was that these sort of one-shot cures have reduced recurring revenue versus sort of chronic uh, disease therapies. And the example given was the Gilead Sciences Hep C drug that, you know, was very very profitable as well as being very expensive but now they're sort of running out of patience for it whereas you know treating chronic diseases such as cancer creates a much more stable cash flow yeah i think that's right and i think that is why we have not seen as many cures as we might have under a different incentive system uh and you know there have been many scholars who've pointed this out uh, over over a many year uh, many years that cures are tend to not be as profitable and so f- for that reason i um my view was that some of the criticism of the Hep C prices was was not entirely justified, uh, at least in comparison to other uh, treatments that were you know, either two or three or four times more expensive and were not cures. Uh, you know, the, the way that I like to describe it is that you know, hepatitis C is expensive, but when you you stop paying it because you're cured, there are treatments in other areas that are even more expensive, and the reason you stop paying for them is because you die, and that is an entirely irrational system. Um, so, so I, I take your point that that, um, that it is uh, it is problematic uh, that these are that these have a different business model that may not create the same incentives uh, that a, a recurring type of treatment uh, might. Uh, in terms of shifting insurers, the purpose of insurance is to spread the costs over a large portion of the population. If people didn't change from one insurer to another, then the problem of a high upfront cost and benefit spread over a longer period of time after that wouldn't necessarily be as problematic as it is now. Um, and, and maybe the, I'm not sure if this is the direction that you were thinking, but that, that may be one of the best arguments for why a single payer system might make sense because you don't have that shifting insurer problem. Yeah, I think we're in a, a time of extraordinary churn in both between public and private and between different segments of of either of them. You know, there have been, there are, you know, there are some groups that are experimenting and some payers that are experimenting with some models of, you know, over time payments for some of these, you know, one-time potentially curative treatment, you know, so that they, so that the, the payment is spread out over time. And so that ultimately, you know, if a patient doesn't see the sustained kind of response that they were expecting, then, you know, then maybe the, the payment for the product can be cut off at that point. But, you know, I think that your point that there's a concern that the patient, you know, flips over to another insurer and, and now there's a, there's a whole different series of considerations is, a, is an important one. And I think that's one of the limitations of the very fragmented system that we have in the United States and is a, you know, a something that is, you know, a, a issue that is not observed in countries like, uh, you know, UK or countries in Europe where there is a single insurer that covers everyone through through their life. And so if there are later benefits from a one-time uh, treatment, then the same insurer is going to be able to earn the, the sort of observe the benefits from that at the same time. And so there, and so that might affect how 
how their their willingness to pay and their ability to pay up front. But you know, at the end of the day, I think that that's another consideration as we're as we think about you know reforming the U.S. system and whether or not the the you know we're going to have trouble uh, bringing some of these you know potentially curative treatments to market. So I do want to leave a little time to talk about one of your new projects in a second, but this is the first pod that's gone out since the resignation of uh, the FDA uh, commissioner, uh, Scott Gottlieb. And I mean, from my perspective, um, looking in the consumer-facing, patient-facing uh, apps and wearable space, uh, some of Gottlieb's work has been really quite interesting, not necessarily correct, but certainly interesting. There's been innovation at FDA uh, with the pre-certification model and so on. I wondered from, from your perspectives, looking at it more from the, uh, the perspective of, of drug approvals and so on and innovation, uh, whether you had any thoughts about, uh, Gottlieb and, and his, uh, perhaps premature resignation. I think that Commissioner Gottlieb in his two plus years at FDA, uh, you know, I thought that he tried to uphold the, the goals of the FDA and the, uh, and the mission of the FDA. As a as a public health focused organization, and you know, I thought that he you know tried to encourage, for example, you know, uptake of uh, of vaccines, and he I thought that he took some steps, you know, in in uh, trying to uh, improve the the way that we or or continue to to regulate uh, tobacco, and you know, in many respects, you know, I think that he he's been one of the current presidential administration's you know more successful picks for for position, and and. I, and you know the average FDA commissioner spends about two years at the at the FDA, so you know it, it his his term ended up being uh, you know about the about the normal length for uh, for a commissioner. Well, let's uh, end, gentlemen, by um, uh, talking about uh, an exciting new uh, project from your portal group. We are we are excited to uh, announce that we've developed an online course called the FDA and Prescription Drugs: Current Controversies in Context, um, in which we describe some of the key issues relating to the FDA and its regulation of prescription drugs, you know, and try to, um, you know, help uh, explain in a relatable way, you know, why the FDA regu- is, is, why the FDA is so important, what the FDA's rules are relating to drug regulation, why it is that drug prices are so high in the United States, how the FDA monitors uh, drugs after they're approved, um, you know, what the, what the rules are relating to the promotion of drug, um, and then we also get into some uh, current controversies relating to innovation in certain markets, like for uh, for drugs for rare diseases or tropical diseases, drugs for cancer. And so what we do is we take students, uh, professionals, policymakers, really anybody who wants more of an in-depth understanding of the prescription drug market and its regulation, we take them through the history of the FDA and the uh, and the current rules relating to the um, discovery development and then post-approval uh, oversight of prescription drugs. And um, we've got a whole bunch of, of guest experts to join us from former FDA Commissioner Peggy Hamburg to patient advocates, experts on observational studies and, and post-market oversight. We have a guest from uh, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence or NICE in the United Kingdom talking about what's going on and, ha- and how the FDA's oversight compares to, to the UK. And so uh, when we do this uh, over the course of six online sessions and it's totally free and 
and uh, and you can you can sign up for it at the um, at the edX portal or by uh, or by going to http colon slash slash bitly or bit ly slash Harvard X FDA um, and sign up for it there but if you if you go onto the edX portal you'll you'll find the the course and and we're you know really excited to to uh, invite everyone to join us so that was the week in health law a big thank you to drs Gesselheim and Dara for joining me gentlemen I know Aaron you're on Twitter at a Kesselheim uh, and of course the organization is at portal underscore research uh, Jonathan I think you you've, you've managed to uh, to resist the the temptation of of Twitter so far is that right I actually joined uh, to maybe th- two days ago if I'm reading this correctly at Darrow Jonathan Darrow Jonathan it is go go follow Jonathan uh, so anything else as far we've got the uh, the link to the new course and everything which will obviously will go in the show notes as well it was great fun having you on the pod Aaron always great fun to talking with you and and also uh, that's true now for for Jonathan as well so thank you very much for joining me a pleasure to be here thanks yeah, for yeah thank me. you very much Nick and congratulations on, on the great success of this podcast it's been going now you said uh, uh, over 150 shows which is just uh, just fantastic thank you show notes are at tour.com I'm at Nick Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Thank you for joining me and have a legally interesting but healthy week. 